Hello and welcome to Tea Time Declarations episode 3. Uh, Tea Time Declarations is a new podcast uh, where we discuss uh, cricket and the geo- geopolitical ramifications of our great game. Uh, generally a rambly wander through, bit of a stream of consciousness, uh, wander through current uh, themes and looking at their politics, diplomacy, money and, uh, and all the good stuff. Uh, we are your hosts. Uh, I'm Paul Seligman, a uh, medium pace bowler for Homebury St. Mary uh, and the Marauders. And and I'm Jonathan Russell. Good afternoon. I'm looking forward to talking, talking about this one, Paul. We're, we're going to be focusing on the Cricket World Cup. We are nearing the end of the group stages as we record this. Uh, in fact, on the screen now we have New Zealand against Sri Lanka in their final group game. One of them looks like they're going to go through to the semi-final. Sri Lanka looked like they're going to go out. Um, So it comes at a pressing time. And uh, the title for this episode is... Is this cup half full? We're into the 13th edition now of the Men's Cricket World Cup. None of them have taken place without remarkable stories on the field and off the field. So as we come towards the end, at last, of the 2023 Cricket World Cup, feels like it's been going on for about decade. Um, This episode looks back at some of these incidents and the impact that they've had uh, on the world. Um, So I think we're going to go through, well we're going to go through three particular World Cups and have a sort of chat about the people, the countries that won them and how they affected, what effect that had politically. Um, Starting with 1983 and then the 1992 Cricket World Cup. So we are, for those of you who know your World Cup history, we're very much on the subcontinent here. Uh, and talking about cricket uh, in India, uh, uh, Pakistan. Uh, but starting with the current World Cup then, um, so it has it has been a long old tournament, and we're not even at the business end yet. Um, it's been hosted by, by India. Uh, it seems to have been a tournament made entirely for India, um, and India have delivered. They're, they're the only unbeaten team. And it's not even that they've delivered. I mean, they, they sort of stumbled a little bit against Australia in the very, their very, very first game. But then after that, they just, I mean, they, they, they bowled three teams out for single figures. They, mm-hmm. they, yeah, they're winning double by... Figures. Uh, double figures. Double figures, yeah. They, they, they're, they're winning by, you know, 100, 150 run margins by seven, eight wickets. They're just, they're just ploughing everybody out of their way. And... Uh, it just doesn't look like they're going to fall over at any at, at any moment. But, and, yeah. and certainly in the first half of the tournament, I'd say that that led to quite a lack of tension within all of the games. I, it felt like the first dozen games, there wasn't anything that came within six wickets or within 100 runs. No, it did feel like... It, sort of, it almost felt like... Because we, we've talked a lot, uh, you and I, Johnny, about the marginalisation of list A cricket, one day cricket. And... Um, you know, it's, it's just certainly happened for England. They've had a terrible, terrible tournament. But it sort of felt like for the first half of this tournament, it sort of felt like everyone was kind of getting back into the swing of it. And they're like, oh, yeah, I remember how to do this. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I see what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fine, fine, fine. So, so yeah, you know, basically teams were getting themselves into a hole and completely unable to drag themselves back out again and therefore losing the game. Things are getting a little bit closer now. But, you know, but this game that we've got on the screen here, New Zealand bowled Sharanka out for 170-odd and looks like they're now 65 for none. Devon Conway going great guns, and you know, just looks like they're not then going to knock this off relatively quickly. They need to, in case it rains. And none more 
uh, able to, or failing to get themselves out of a hole than England, who have had possibly the worst ever World Cup of a of a winning nation uh, yeah. from mm. the previous series. I wonder, you know, worst ever World Cup for a you know, major cricketing. These things that you often comparing apples and oranges, but they've won two games. One of them was against Bangladesh, which is that's not that's not the they're not the minnows that they once were. But the other was against the Dutch, and we that was yesterday, and we were really we were relieved. What when they were they were 170 off six and really struggling, and then they got dug out of the hole by who else but Ben Stokes. So um, yeah, it's been bad. It's been really bad. It has well. Here's, here's hoping that the um, final games and the uh, the semi-finals and onwards uh, pose a bit of tension and and there's some surprises in because if if India just continue their inevitable march towards winning another World Cup, um, I fear for the for the overall ODI format. Yeah, yeah, me too. We were saying earlier that you can you can sort of feel the format creaking, not just the World Cup format. Which is a sort of you know, league, an eleven-team league, and then the top four go through to semi-finals, and that that the format being set up as it is means that you can, in theory, lose five games out of your ten group games and still go through to the, the semi-finals. So that's just a bit of a strange setup. Feels like it's designed to eke out as much cricket as possible from the from the tournament. Looking back through history, as, as Paul mentioned, uh, there were some tournaments with a little bit more tension, uh, where there was a bit more on the line, and, and there was a, we think, a little bit of a, a deeper political and geopolitical impact. So, um, so let's let's dive back into history then and look at the first of our uh, interesting World Cups of 1983. Paul, yeah, that's right. So the 1983. Uh, World Cup. It was the third World Cup, the first ones in 1975. And by that stage, the World Cup had really got established as a, a serious uh, tournament, something that uh, something that cricketers really wanted to win. Um, the first ones in 1975, I think it was seen as a little bit of a gimmick. Um, it was exciting, but I think it was seen as maybe a bit like the early T20 tournaments um, of the 2000s. It was seen, you know, is this, is this format going to work? Are we, you know, is this going to really, is this going to capture the public imagination and things like that? But by 1983, it was really up and running. The West Indies under Clive Lloyd had won in 75 and 79 and uh, really it hadn't looked like losing. It was, this was the great era of West Indies cricket and they were carrying all before them. Uh, I think not unlike the Indian team is currently doing in the 2023 World Cup, but uh, 40 years ago, it was the third World Cup in England because, of course, all World Cups had to be in England at that time. I, I never, I've never really understood why, but uh, that was that was the case. It was the third World Cup in a row in England, and we were in for a, for a real surprise because, uh, sure enough, the West Indies trooped to the final, pretty much unchallenged. Uh, and then in the final, they were upset by the, the then banana skin team, India, uh, who were not the cricketing powerhouse that they are now. Serious cricketing country, but not the kind of the kind of behemoth that, that they have become. And it was a real it was a real surprise. And and the tournament looked a little bit different then. Well, the format looked different. It was a sixty-over match. Teams were still wearing whites. 
And this tournament was the first one where they had a 30-yard fielding circle with, with fielding restrictions for, for players inside the, um, inside the ring at all times. So, um, yeah, interesting. But it was also a, a pretty closed shop. All the teams played each other twice. Mm-hmm. Only, uh, only eight teams. Exactly. Um, although uh, this, maybe it didn't feel like a closed shop. Sri Lanka uh, had just become a test-playing nation and Zimbabwe qualified through the ICC trophy so you know there, there there was some intrigue to it but yeah the main story was that the the Bermoth West Indian team dominant throughout the the late 70s and 80s were knocked off their perch by India and this this was Kapil Dev's World Cup wasn't it he he parachuted to um to kind of hero status through his um, through his leadership of, of that side, could could we say that it was a bit unfair? That, you know, because Cap- Kapildev really was remembered as the great player of this World Cup and the great breakout star of this World Cup. But the actual mo- most wickets were taken by um, by his colleague Roger Binney. Is that so, right? You know, I don't know why Roger <laughs> Binney's been forgotten, but uh, yeah, this was Kapildev's cup really. Most runs in that World Cup. Care to have a guess? Oh, Got to be a West Indian player. Uh... I'll give you a key clue. It wasn't. It wasn't Viv. It wasn't Viv. No, who was it? It was David Gower. Gower. <laughs> not a West Indian player. <laughs> and and so, what did this do for for cricket in India? What did this do for India? Well, look, I I, I am not um, I'm not an expert either on Indian cricket or on Indian culture and and, and and politics. So I don't want to I don't want to dig dig deep into into any of that because I'll, I'll just talk nonsense. But the having you know, with the World Cups sort of in the front and centre at the moment, there have been a lot of a lot of documentaries, a lot of little bits and bobs and reminiscing and that kind of thing. And one of the things, one of the themes that seems to 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 come through when Indian cricket players and commentators talk about the 1983 World Cup was that this was the start, the moment that cricket changed from being a popular sport and a popular pastime to being a national obsession in India. And this was the first, and we're going to talk about Pakistan in a, in a little bit, but the winning of these World Cups do seem to have had a cultural significance in those countries because, like I say, they changed cricket to being, you know, now this is the theme that I want to get into, did cricket start to assume almost a religious status in India? Now, neither of us are Indian, so we're not really qualified to comment on that. But what we do know from the outside is that people in India and people in Pakistan and people in, well, all over the Indian subcontinent are obsessed with cricket in a way that I don't think a lot of people in other countries are as obsessed with their sports. And so if that was the change moment, then what were, what have been the cultural and political ramifications in, in India? So I'm prepared to, to indulge you, Paul. Um, so what, what, were the, what were the elements that we think made it a kind of religion-like uh, concept? I mean, there, there's a, there feels like a unifying narrative. Mm. Yeah. Within cricket that came out of 1983 World Cup, we, you know, we'd just come from the Nelly massacre earlier that year, which was big Hindu on Muslim violence up in Assam province. So there was an element that here within a secular country, 
um, and cricket has since been called the last secular bastion of of India. Um, this was a, an opportunity for for Muslim and Hindu communities to to unify. I think there was also a kind of an element of um, being the underdog against uh, former colonial powers for sure, within for this, sure. not against West Indies, of course, but but against. England as hosts and um, I mean India knocked England out in the semi-final. Yeah, and India, England were a, you know, a cricketing powerhouse at the time, second only to the West Indies. They were definitely the underdogs in that in that semi-final, and they knocked them over quite comprehensively. So, are we are we painting Kapildev as Martin Luther? <laughs> so, so look, let's talk about cricket and and religion. So we have to leave aside the theological side of things because obviously a religion presupposes some kind of divine or supernatural so let's leave that aside we have our personal views but let's not let, let's not go into that what else what else does religion do in society what else do people gain from religion why else do people um, continue to attend religious services, remain part of religious communities, that kind of thing. Well, you know, every, every, every individual's answer is going to be different, but it's something to do with community, with tradition, with a sense of purpose, um, with collective triumph and collective failure being born together. And, uh, and so then, if you put it in that context, cricket in India... From, from my viewpoint, cricket in India fulfills an awful lot, ticks an awful lot of those boxes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And you've got to remember, at the time, it feels strange to say it, but at the time, cricket wasn't the national sport. It wasn't even the predominant sport in India. Both hockey and football were, mm. were more popular at the time, and cricket was seen as a little bit of an elitist sport. Sure. And, and part of that, I think, was because the focus up to that point had been on test cricket, which is, is, I think, and still remains, a little bit more elitist. And, and I think what the 1983 World Cup helped do was get more eyeballs on shorter-form cricket. Mm -hmm. and, and arguably that was the first step in this longer trajectory towards um, T20 cricket and, and the IPL as being the real national obsession yeah, within India. There, there's another thing about heroes, um, because... Uh, religions require charismatic leaders, absolutely. And I think I think Kapildev did fulfil those criteria. Mm. Um, you've also got to say, Sachin Tendulkar would have grown up watching that. Yeah. He was ten yeah. for the for exactly. that World Cup final in 1983, and so that you know probably meant that he spent his his time, and it became an obsession for him, and he then became the the. Why well, he then was the second coming of Indian cricket uh, at that point. Um, so I think there's I think there's something there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and this Indian team didn't didn't go on to dominate cricket for the next ten years. The next ten years continued to be dominated by their opponents in that final, the West Indies, and the winners of the next World Cup were actually Australia, despite the fact that the the World Cup itself. Uh, was hosted in India and Pakistan. So actually, they didn't. It, that, that while that World Cup final may have been a catalyst culturally for cricket, it was not a catalyst in cricketing terms for the Indian 
mm-hmm. team, that came ten years later yeah. with the with the arrival of you know Sachin Tendulkar and Rahul Dravid yeah. and VVS Laxman and, and all of those great all those all of them batsmen, of course, That's batters. True. That's true. Um, so cricket as religion, other other elements. Then I think. Um, Domestically, a huge money spinner within the country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think for the first time, the establishment in India saw it as an opportunity to, to make money, not just to unify. By that uh, stage, as, again, my, my Indian history, modern Indian history is, um, is shaky. However, by that stage, India had moved on from its flirtation with communism. Mm. It was an established capitalist society. Getting capitalist societies, money and power are are almost in lockstep, and then in religious societies, religion and power are almost in lockstep as well. And then it's actually, to my mind, throughout history, it's always been a triangle of power, religion, and money have always kind of operated in. Well, they've been sort of pulling against each other uh, for uh, for prominence, and so so ab- absolutely that. The, the rise of, of cricket as big business in India has then also pulled power into the cricketing part of the Venn diagram, I, I would say. And I think you can speak a little bit more to how cricket has warped, you know, there are examples of how cricket has warped local politics in India. That's right. Well, and, and, and international politics, I think, as well. Cricket, cricket as religion, religion as soft power internationally, I think, I think should be talked about. You know, if you... If you ask people for globally for their perception of, of India, cricket is going to be their top ten. Probably Bollywood uh, is going to be there as top ten, and and those two cultural things I think are are huge, and and then come together in this amazing film that I'd recommend you to watch if you haven't. Eighty three, which uh, tells the story of the nineteen eighty three World Cup and and Kapil's men. Um, now. Sports don't tend to do very well in film, but actually, this this film, nineteen eighty oh, three, is is exceptional, yeah. and I'd uh, I'd encourage you to watch. I mean, there have been direct, you know, as as the, as, as, as the as the prominence of cricket has risen in India, there have been certain direct crossings of the of the aisle. Obviously, in one direction, you know, talented politicians tend to emerge a little bit older, talented cricketers tend to emerge a little bit younger. But, I mean, I mean, um, Thatchin was a member of parliament for, for years while playing cricket. And, you know, he was playing all over the world. I mean, he had, he had a terrible attendance record and he wasn't, a, he wasn't elected, although doubtless if he had stood for election, he would have been. Um, but he was just, it, was, it was a political appointment. But nevertheless, he was a member of parliament. Gautam Gambhir, hmm. after playing, he was a member of parliament and Mohammed Azharuddin. So, you know, and, and, and we'll, we'll explore this question a little bit later with Pakistan and Imran Khan, but would, would Gautam Gambia have become a politician if he didn't have basically 100% name recognition in, in India? Who knows? No, that's, yeah. that's, that's true. And let's look at it the other way around just as we wrap up this topic. Um, is cricket in India representative? Like, do 1.3 billion people... Uh, across cities and countryside, across all religions and none, um, see themselves in the Indian cricket team. Because I'm always dismayed when I look at uh, when I look into the the Indian cricket team, 
how it's dominated by people from the cities, not not the countryside. I mean, Dhoni is always the name that sticks out as as being the country boy. Mm, yeah, but I but I, I looked into it. MS Dhoni came from a city that is bigger than any other English any English city. But it's it's not considered a city by by small, mega city standards town, in, town, in India. Boy, yeah, so you know we can say it's small town, but he's, he's clearly not. Um, you know, Muslim representation in the Indian cricket team pretty right pretty minor. There's only one in the in the Indian squad uh, yeah. currently at the World Cup. That's Mohammed Shami mm-hmm. taking the most wickets out of out of anyone in the in their side. Um, but um, so that that doesn't feel representative. And then you know the biggest area of division in India, arguably, is the class and caste structure, and. There seems to be absolutely no chance of, of any of the untouchables or any of the lower castes ever joining the the Indian cricket team, um, whether that's for money reasons or whether that's for discrimination reasons or, or whether that's uh, kind of wider cultural reasons. So it's it's peculiar. Like I take I take the broad um, sentiment that India is or cricket is is India's predominant religion. Um, but there's there's some areas where it comes up short, um, and and yet seems to be popular, regardless. Hmm. Shall we shall we pivot to uh, 1992? And uh, and have a look at the case of Pakistan. Yeah, yeah, fascinating, fascinating tournament, the nineteen ninety two uh, cricket World Cup. So, I mean, the cricket World Cup has not; it just hasn't been going for that long. Um, you know, we think of because you know, you, with the football World Cup, which is really the model for all of these things, it's been they've just been going on forever. You know, it's just been happening every four years, and that they've kind of. You know, 1966 is this great big shining year in English cricket, but Uruguay won. Didn't Uruguay win the very first Football World Cup? And that was, you know, 17 BC or something. And it was, it was, it was in <laughs> 1930s. Yeah. And so, um, wow, if we, the moment I step off the path of cricket or something else, I've got no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, 1992 was, was kind of, in my head, the first World Cup of the modern era. So it was held in Australia, New Zealand. Um, coloured pajamas. They had coloured pajamas. I mean, amazing kits. Uh, brilliant. Um, brilliant. White balls, day night matches for the first time. Vitally, you know, the kits that are on show at the moment. You know, we're watching here. We're watching Sri Lanka against um, New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand just lost um, Devon, Devon Conway, hmm. eighty-six for one. Uh, they're halfway there. Um, the, the New Zealanders have got a fetching kind of black and grey number with uh, sort of pinstripes down the front. Very good. And the uh, the Sri Lankans are wearing their traditional kind of blue and yellow, but it's definitely designed. It's you know, been locally designed within you know within the the, the, the particular board have had a chance to. The, the, in 1992, that wasn't the case. Every team had, was you know wore exactly the same uniform, just a different colour. Yes. You know, the same pattern, it had sort of red and white and blue across the That's front, right. didn't it? And the name of the country very prominently, but it did have they did have numbers and names on the back on the back. That's true. Yeah. But um but no, nineteen ninety two was Pakistan's World Cup. Mm. Um they started awfully. Uh, I mean I 
at one point they were bowled out for well they bowled out for 74 by England bowled out by seven, for 74 by England and basically they suffered no effects in the tournament for that because the game was rained off after they in between the innings I think and, and that meant that it was just scotched that's true uh, but Pakistan from that point managed to march to the final where they were met again by England um, and it should be noted England probably shouldn't have been there um, yeah for sure uh, because in the uh, in the semi-final against South Africa, uh, in the absence of the Duckworth Lewis Stern method, potentially the catalyst for the creation of the Duckworth Lewis Stern. Method. Yes, there, it was rain affected. Uh, therefore, least expensive overs or something like that. Derek Pringle had bowled four maidens, which meant that, that basically South Africa ended up needing more runs than it was feasibly possible to get. Well, and did they actually play the ball? They did. They just battered it away and then stormed off yeah, in protest. Um, but but it, sh- it should be noted as well. You know that wasn't the um, <laughs> that wasn't their only uh, experience of uh, the rain rule. Ra- the in two thousand and three, famously, Mark Boucher was batting and they miscalculated the Duckworth Lewis score, turned down runs, dotted away the uh, the last ball of the over while it was raining. Um, so that they didn't lose any more wickets, and they'd got the calculation wrong, and they needed an extra run they for it to be a win to. rather than a tie, and so they, <laughs> they didn't progress. Oh God! Just show. But no, 1992 was Pakistan's World Cup in the final, in the end, and it was Imran Khan's World Cup. He yeah. was their captain. He was very much in the evening of his career. Well, he was 40. Yeah, was born in 1952. <laughs> yeah. So 40 by this point, this was to become his last professional game of cricket. Um, and considering the start that they had, and they were not fancied. Not fancied at all. They didn't even have the reputation that they have now of kind of always showing up for tournaments. You know, they, they, they'd really got nowhere up to, that, up to that point. And it was the 15th night of Ramadan. So, I mean, I would assume that at least half of the Pakistani team would have been fasting at sure. the time, probably more. Um, and, and Imran Khan steamed in, well, having scored 73 earlier in the, in the day... Steamed in and, and took the last wicket to to win the match again from not a not a favourable position. I think I think they got um, Pakistan batted first, scored two four nine, mm. and England looked good for it, but were eventually bowled out uh, for two hundred and twenty seven. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, this is a, a subject for a future episode, but I was just banging on about South Africa choking when it's a horribly undeserved reputation given the the, the raw deal that they've had in in, in some World Cups. But uh, I, I, there's a strong argument to be made that England are sports' greatest chokers, yeah, given, given how, they've, how they've cocked up fi- particularly finals over, over the years. And, and even the finals that they have won in just about every sport, they've come very close to losing. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was one where they, you know, England should have, England should have, should have won, this, won this game. Yeah, very big team. Big collapse in the middle order, you know, which, was, which, which you know, England's middle order collapses was to become... Uh, an old, an old favoured headline. I think quite a lot of newspapers just had it set in type. <laughs> just, just grab that out whenever you need it. That's that's right. Um, but I suppose something to be said is that um, England were never the underdogs at that time because of their their dominance within cricket and because of their kind of position internationally. Uh, and so, cricket as a as a kind of game of underdogs and these you know the opportunity for these sorts of narrative arcs I think is great and that's exactly what Imran Khan kind of took on as you know the comeback kings as the the underdog coming through 
and then being cast as this hero, taking the last, you know, uh, the, the last ball of his international career he took a wicket with in the World Cup final, finished at the very pinnacle to, of to world win. sport. Yeah. To win the World Cup, lift the, lift the trophy. I mean, the only person I can think of that comes close to that, and maybe we can talk about his future career post-cricket, uh, post is Stuart Broad taking taking a wicket with the last ball of his professional career sure, yes, uh, in the Ashes this this earlier this summer? Absolutely. I mean, in, in, in sporting terms, it's as if Johnny Wilkinson had just walked off the field in two thousand and three and never played rugby again. That's right. Uh, I, I kind of wish he had. Um, but but no. So and and then so we're talking about geopolitical impact here. So retires at the very top, um, having taken Pakistan to an unexpected victory for all sorts of reasons. Um, and in 1996, just four years later, he co-founded the Pakistan Movement for Justice, mm. or in, um, in Urdu, the Pakistan Tehreek-e Insaf, which is this peculiar nationalist, Islamist, anti-Western, um, an anti-war on terror, crucially, uh, political party in Pakistan. And he he ran on that ticket. He got a lot of military backing, which is necessary to succeed in Pakistan, um, and uh, and became prime minister for, for quite some time. And um, and I think the, the key question is, would he have made it to these heights in Pakistan politically had he not finished his career exactly how he did? Mm, yeah, yeah. It, it was winning the World Cup. Yeah, how important was it? I'm sure it yeah, there's, it 100% was a factor, but how important was it to Imran Khan's later political career? And his political career is not is not over. Is he in jail? So he is in jail. So so quick quick kind of recent history lesson. He was accused uh, and probably um, rightfully so of a lot of corruption when he was in office. Um, he lost the backing of the of the military. Um, he faced a vote of no confidence and was ousted. Uh, some call it a coup, some some don't. Um, and he's he's then redefined himself again, having been ousted as this populist, anti-establishment rebel. He accuses everybody of foreign collusion, and he was then arrested for for that uh, for those seditious uh, statements. Um, but Pakistan's elections are coming up in in February twenty twenty four. Two billion people get to get to get to vote new leaders in in 2024. It's the biggest concentration of elections we've ever seen, and Pakistan um, among them. That that little fact. Next year being the biggest biggest collective elections ever seen. It's going to be fine, isn't it? It's going to be awful. It's going to be and and it's it's mostly going to be awful, I think, because people like Imran Khan are riding this wave of populism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so my question is is not simply. Has he succeeded because of how he finished his cricketing career? But has those narratives of his cricketing career, of being the underdog, of being a personal hero, of the comeback, and of trying to unite Pakistani people against all odds, and doing so uh, spurred forward by religious fervour, mm-hmm. you know, during during Ramadan, is... Is one, one last point there. Winning the final against the former colonial power. Exactly. Is that, has that led to his particular brand of politics, mm-hmm. which is populist and Islamist and nationalist 
and um, an anti-establishment. Um, because it, you know, the Indian politicians that you mentioned, Gambir, Tendulkar, Azruddin, have not overwhelmingly run on those tickets, whereas mm. Imran Khan has. No, and, and vitally, they haven't as yet become president, prime minister, or, or anything particularly prominent. Um, the um, so a few things. I mean, the, the again, watching documentaries and listening to. Um, Listening to the memories of people who who were watching. I mean, I was six at the time. Were you even were you even around? In in 1992. Yeah, yeah, I was two. You were two. Yeah, yeah okay. I, so I, you would have been following closely. I was scoring. Yeah. Um, so the the um, listening to, to memories of it. Yeah, there was an explosion of joy in Pakistan after after the final. Um, you know, huge huge celebrations. Imran Khan particularly lauded as a you know, as as the great the great hero of, of this of this triumph, and so you know for sure the fact that he then you know immediately retired and went into politics, it must have had an effect. However, on the other side of that, one of the things you listening to listen to, you know, Wazim Akram or Wakar Yunis talking about talking about him, they were young men at the time. Um, you know, they were they were young players, uh, very much under Imran Khan's wing, and. You know, they talk about what a magnetic character he is, what a physically impressive character he is, how charismatic and how inspiring a leader uh, he is. He's extremely eloquent. He's obviously extremely intelligent. So, you know, would he have succeeded if Pakistan had lost that game? Would he have succeeded if Pakistan have, had gone out in the group stage and never been seen again? You know, who, yeah. who knows? We can't, we can't look into a parallel... A parallel universe, um, but there's no doubt that you, you, you don't you don't just get you don't get there on sporting triumph. So I think that probably brings us to uh, to, to an end of this slightly rapid run through uh, the political and religious ramifications of cricket on the on the subcontinent. Um, there is a coda that I wanted to throw in here, uh, unplanned, not in our notes, uh, which is to do with religion, politics, and the Afghanistan cricket team. After the Afghanistan cricket team have, have really sprung to prominence in this World Cup, they beat, they beat England just like everyone else, and they have you know they're, they're still in even as we watch uh, New Zealand and Sri Lanka um, battling it out for New Zealand's spot in the quarterfinals. They're still in with a chance, mathematically speaking, of making it to the quarterfinals. But my question is whether they should be there at all, given that the uh, political situation in Afghanistan and the religious situation in Afghanistan means that there is no uh, Afghan women's cricket team, which is a prerequisite of being a full member of the ICC that you have a fully funded women's cricket team. But again, it seems just sort of a quiet veil seems to have been drawn over that, no pun intended. Yeah, the ICC is happy to look the other way on that. Um, other cricket boards, to their credit, are not. Mm -hmm. Various bilateral series have been cancelled most notably by Australia in the last couple of years since the Taliban returned to power. Um, so, yes, it is it's hugely problematic. I, I think um, the ICC's official position is that they haven't put a time constraint on the development of a women's side. And so, um, despite obviously no roadmap to that, um, the Afghanistan Cricket Board are at least able to say, oh, well, we're not not complying. I mean, one of one of sports' greatest political 
political moves was to freeze South African South Africa out of international sport for decades on the back, on the basis of systemic politically motivated racism. That's right, and I, and I think that is a perfect um, next topic for for episode four. Sure. Let's look at the power of uh, of boycotts and um, uh, and the curious case of, of South Africa mm. and uh, and Zimbabwe and uh, and Afghanistan in in our next episode because it, it certainly deserves a, a full episode's attention. Good stuff. Well, thanks, Johnny. Before we before we do uh, sign off, a quick uh, 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 fan mail corner. Of our uh, mailbag has been literally bulging considering we have received a letter. Uh, from Edgar, age nine, in Byfleet. Thank you very much, Edgar. Dear Johnny and Paul, long-time listener, first-time writer. Uh, I was intrigued by your description of the relationship between China's global strategy and cricket in your last episode. With so much money involved, I speculate as to whether it has anything to do with the game itself. Uh, other, other points made, including uh, the spread of cricket through colonialism, and particularly in this case through the Royal Navy, and then the diminishing of uh, British power in the world and the rise of subcontinental power and, and whether, whether cricket is a driver or a beneficiary of that uh, in the subcontinent. Thank you very much, Edgar. Please do uh, share your thoughts with us again. Yes, and that goes for the rest of you. Um, please do send in your, your feedback and your questions um, and, you know, if if we get any more than one, we might have to spin off a, a, a Tea Time Declarations Q&A <laughs> or Question Time uh, podcast in due course. The rest is Tea Time Declarations. <laughs> uh, but that's it for now. Um, thank you for tuning in. Um, this was episode three on the Cricket World Cup of Tea Time Declarations. We're available at the moment on Spotify and you can follow us at the moment on Twitter um, as was X. Now it's at T Declarations. Um, but please like, follow, and share it with your friends. And uh, we look forward to talking to you for our next episode. Bye for now. Cheerio.